Good morning, everyone. And I'm very, very grateful to be here this morning. I don't know whether any of you have had the same experiences I've had of being the last speaker on a rostrum of speakers that have been just particularly outstanding. And I have not had a very comfortable weekend at all. As they continued to speak and got better, I was going to try to sneak out about midnight last night and just leave. I thought there's no way that I can ever get up there in the morning and do what I have to do after all the beautiful presentations. And not only that, but you know, you arrive at a point where I'm convinced that you can OD on this after a while, you know. You're not careful. So I want all of you to just sit back and relax. You're going to be here for a little while. <laughs> I get very nervous whenever I have any of these chores to do, and particularly this weekend has been very agonizing because knowing I was going to be the last speaker, and, um, you know, I agonized, and uh, I generally get terribly, terribly nervous. And uh, I had lots of time to do it this weekend. And uh, last night, oh my God, after listening to John, my old friend, I thought, no way. I didn't sleep well. I got up this morning and prayed and got more nervous. And I was reminded as I came up to the uh, podium this morning about my nervousness. I want to give you uh, an example of how I feel. Uh, it takes me back many years ago after I had come to Alcoholics Anonymous. I was invited to speak at one of our major penal institutions in Canada, namely the Kingston Penitentiary. I had never been in penitentiary. I should have been, but I hadn't made it. And uh, I accepted the invitation, and the warden was very kind. He invited me to have lunch with him on that particular day. And I proceeded to Kingston, Ontario, and had lunch with the warden. And following lunch, he said, it's now time for us to go to the assembly hall. And I was getting more nervous by the moment. And as we began this long trek through a series of corridors to the assembly hall, I grew more and more nervous. And uh, the sweat was pouring out and everything. And the first thing that I observed as we made this uh, journey towards the assembly hall was uh, that they kept locking doors all the time. They weren't too fussy about who was going to come in, but my God, they were fussy about who was going to go out of there, I want you to know. Finally, we arrived in the assembly hall. If I was nervous before, now I'm petrified. I'm in front of a large group of several hundred prisoners in their gray uniforms and their numbers on, and a very menacing-looking sight indeed. And unlike today, it was one of those occasions when they had a terribly, terribly lengthy preamble to the meeting. Everybody had something to say. They went out in the hall and got the janitor and came in and talked for 20 minutes, you know. And finally, they got around to introducing me as the speaker, and I stepped to the front of the platform, and I had a terrible, terrible experience, one that a speaker hopes he would never have in a lifetime. My mind went blank. I couldn't think of a single thing to say. And after what seemed like an eternity, and which was only a matter of a few seconds, I'm sure, I'm saying to myself inside waters, you've got to get this thing underway. And I hope that I'll never forget that my opening remarks to them was, I was glad to see so many of them there, you see. Don't do that in the penitentiary. As a priest, I very often get asked the question, and indeed I've been asked it many times over the weekend, 
What order do you belong to, Father? Well, I, I am not what they call an order priest. I am what they call a diocesan priest. I belong to the Diocese of Hamilton, Ontario. But uh, the question reminded me of a story that I thought I might share with you this morning. There are many orders of priests in the church. There's Franciscans and there's uh, Redemptorists and Jesuits and uh, Dominicans and so on and, uh, and many, many orders. Now, the, the, the great Franciscan order, of course, is, is well known throughout the world. They follow the rule of St. Francis and, and they, uh, their work is entirely devoted to helping the poor and the underprivileged. But in recent years, the order has fallen into the hands of some young whippersnappers who have some more modern ideas on how to run the order. And uh, recently they decided that they should have a conference on poverty. And in true Franciscan style, they held it at the Waldorf Astoria in New York, you see. And in the planning, they decided they should ask old Bill, Father Bill, to come up uh, from one of the missions. Bill had been down there for 40 years, uh, had the same sandals he'd had when he was ordained, same robe, never spent, lived the rule of Francis right to the letter, never had gone anywhere, never had anything, lived the life of poverty. And they thought, you know, we should really bring old Bill up and kind of uh, let him have a, a little exposure here and a little treat for him. So they bring old Bill up to the conference in the Wisconsin in the Waldorf Astoria and give him access to all the amenities of the hotel. And old Bill, of course, thought he'd died and gone to heaven, you know. And uh, he wandered around there and dining room, bars, what have you, you know. And after about four days, there's a reporter came up to Father Bill and said, Bill, the father... What do you think of the Conference on Poverty? He said, Son, if this is the Conference on Poverty, I can hardly wait uh, for the one on chastity. <laughs> My father, God rest his soul, was a beautiful Irishman. He was a shanty Irishman. He was not a lace curtain Irish tall. And he had no manners. And uh, But we loved him a great deal, and he had a great repertoire of Pat and Mike's stories. And I heard one the other day that, indeed, my father would have enjoyed very much. A story about poor Pat, who was an illiterate soul. He could neither read nor write, and he had a terrible time making ends meet. He'd just scrape by and get a little job here and a little job there and a couple of dollars and get by. And Lady Luck shined on him, and didn't he get a job in the local brewery, cleaning out the vats? Best job he'd ever had in his life. My God, things were just turning up roses. And uh, a tragedy struck. Pat fell in the bat and drowned. And they had the wake, of course. And his wife, Bridget, was there receiving the guests. And Mrs. O'Toole came by, paid her respects, and called Bridget aside. Bridget, she said, is it true? Is it true, she said, that the brewery paid you $500,000 for Pat's death? And Bridget said, it's true, Mrs. O'Toole, they did. Mother of God, she said, that's an awful lot of money for a man who couldn't read and write. And Bridget said, and thank God he couldn't swim. <laughs> well, you will have gathered by now that there's something wrong with me, so I'll get on with my reason for being here. I'm a recovered alcoholic, and my name is Peter Waters, and I'm a member of the Oakville Group of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's the order of importance as far as I'm concerned. Because for many years it was very important who I was and not what I was. It is only by the grace of God and the example that I found in this fellowship that I've been able to find a way of life 
that enables me to live one day at a time without the use of alcohol as befits a human being and as God intended that I should live. My story as an alcoholic is not greatly different than most stories we'll have heard. It has a certain amount of fear and remorse and degradation as we've all experienced it. It differs perhaps in a couple of respects. One is that I was a religious alcoholic, and the other is I was a political alcoholic, and I've always maintained when you put those two together, you end up with a hell of an alcoholic, and that's very true. I want to preface any remarks I have to make this morning by referring you to a slogan that we're very familiar with in our program, and that slogan is to keep an open mind. Now, that's a very, very important slogan, and it's going to be very important to you before I'm finished with you this morning, because I'm going to say some things that are very disturbing, and I hope that I do say some things that are very disturbing. I hope I get you so enraged by the time this meeting is over that you will storm out of this hall and go home and find uh, the big book, wherever you put it. <laughs> and read it again and again and again, because anything I'm going to talk to you about this morning is going to come directly from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. So I exhort you to keep an open mind. Now, I've discovered over the years that there's a great deal of difference between an open mind and a vacant mind, uh, so please keep an open mind. I was born 60 years ago into an Irish Catholic family, and one might say, well, what's that got to do with being an alcoholic? Or perhaps it's not a qualification, but let me assure you, it's not an impediment either, because uh, if you're at all familiar with that kind of a heritage, you know you've got two strikes against you before you even get started. I'm not going to take you through any bottle-by-bottle bottle or blow-by-blow blow description of my drinking, because I don't think, my dear friends, any great and useful purpose would be served. Because I'll tell you this, in this fair city of, jo uh, of Albany last night, there were people who went out and they got into automobiles, and they went out and they wrapped them around telephone poles, they ran over old ladies for ambulators and branders and everything else, and they ended up in jail this morning, and they never took a drink in their life. They're just crazy. <laughs> so I long ago learnt that it was not the quantity or the quality, it's what the stuff does to you. And alcohol did certain things to me that I didn't want it to do. Namely, it made me hurt those I didn't want to hurt. It took me to places I didn't want to be taken to, and it robbed me of things I didn't want to be robbed of. By way of qualification, I'd like to amplify that very briefly. When I tell you that alcohol made me hurt those I didn't want to hurt, I was indeed a very fortunate person to have been born into a good family where my father and mother, God rest them, made many, many sacrifices to provide me with the advantages in life. And yet, you know, I look over my life today and I realize that I am one of those alcoholics whom I identify with, and so many that I meet, that went out of their way to hurt those they loved the most. Oh, it was so true for me. Oh, yes, you know, I have recalled on many occasions that Saturday night was the night you went out in the town. God, could you ever drink on a Saturday night? <laughs> you could drink all into the night on a Saturday night. Why? Because you didn't have to get up on a Sunday morning. Unless you were Catholic. <laughs> but there was a lot of preparation that was necessary to get yourself all dolled up of a Saturday morning uh, so you could go uptown to get sick, you know. And I'd spend the whole of Saturday morning getting myself all dolled up in my finds. I had a different outfit than I have now, I want you to know. And just before I leave my home to go uptown to get sick, I had a full-length mirror inside the bedroom door. I would take one last look at myself, and I'd say to myself, Waters, you look like a Greek god, you know. About 8 o'clock on a Sunday morning, I look like a goddamn Greek, I'll have you know. I would always end up in jail. 
Now, I'm not proud that I ever went to jail, but I was in jail many times. But I made a great discovery through going to jail. You know, of all the times that I was ever in jail, you know what? I never met a social drinker in jail once, never once. But I was well known there. Oh, yes, I was well known. The police knew me very well. And they would come along and say, do you want to make a phone call? Of course, you idiot, I want to make a phone call. I want to call my mother and have her come and bail me out of this joint. Now, as gracious and as beautiful as my mother was, God rest her, there's something you should know about her, and that was that she was Irish. And if you're at all familiar with the temperament of the Irish, you know it's a very volatile temperament. You don't fool around with it. And, then, and so the phone call would be very brief and one-sided. And it would go something like this. Mother, I'm in a little bit of trouble. Be in court tomorrow morning at a quarter to ten. Bring some money and hang up real fast. You know, don't let her get at you. God, that woman would tear you apart. My mother would arrive in the local court on a Monday morning at a quarter to ten. Now, I, I'm going to recall for you the court scene. I'm sure some of you have been there, <laughs> you know. And uh, my mother arrived there, and I discovered over uh, the years that in a small community, you don't buy the local paper to find out who's in trouble. You go to court to find out who's in trouble. They're all there, right? My mother would arrive in the local court at about a quarter to ten on a Monday morning. Now, the courtroom would be about the size, half the size of this hall, not as long. And the front row seats on that side of the courtroom were always kept vacant. Now, those seats were for the special guests. They brought up the special guests from the cells downstairs. <laughs> and at five to ten, uh, they dropped them up and seated them in the special seat. And at ten o'clock, the old man would come in. That's the judge. Now, if any of you have ever been in a court of law, and I suspect some of you have, <laughs> my God, are you ever polite when the judge comes in, eh? Holy God, you get polite in a hurry. You stand up, you sit down, you cross yourself. It's worse than the Catholic Church, I want you to know, eh? Now, the court is in session, and, and you pray to God that the clerk will make a mistake with your name. <laughs> but there's no such luck. He says, a water! So you can hear him for four blocks along the main street. Then he reads the charge. And it's the first time you've heard it, too. <laughs> And it's very damaging. Now, I know that some of you being caught, because I've been with you. <laughs> and you know what the procedure is. I don't know about Albany, Georgia, but most places that I've ever been, uh, you know, they, the prisoner usually sits right down there in the center aisle in the chair, and the old man's up here kind of looking over his glasses like this, you see. And when he says, you stand up, <laughs> it occurs to you, you might be going to the farm for a while. You may be there for the planting, you may be there, may be there for the harvest, who knows? I don't know about anybody else, but I, it occurred to me that perhaps I could impress the judge. I don't know whether you've ever tried to impress the judge or not, but if you haven't, you should try it sometime. I'm just about ready to impress the judge when I suddenly realize that I'm standing there and I have a tie on and no shirt. <laughs> and he looks at me and says, uh, I've seen you before. <laughs> He's seen me so often he thought we're going steady there for a while. Right? And my mother is in the courtroom. My God, how we humiliate people. Then alcohol took me to places I didn't want to be taken to. I can't ever recall standing on the city hall steps in downtown Oakville at the age of 16 and declaring to the world that I'd be on Skid Row by the time I was 30. But that's exactly where I ended up. Not difficult to get on to Skid Row. There are people here this morning who know that. You can walk on, fall on, roll on, tumble on, anything you like on. But mother of God, is it ever hard to get off of that place? But if I had to go to Skid Row, I'm deeply grateful I went to the one that I did. And not the one I have seen on many occasions. When I have been called out to make a 12-step call on some bird who's created his own skid row behind the beautiful drawn drapes of the broad-limbed floors of the Lakeshore Boulevard, and you walk in and he's making love to the toilet roll. And the first thing he's going to tell you, oh, I can't be an alcoholic, I've got too much money. 
I said, keep drinking, you won't have it very long. And then alcohol robbed me of things I didn't want to be robbed of. In the days of my public life and my business life, I belonged to many organizations, indeed I did. There isn't a single one of those organizations that ever cost me as much money to get into as it cost me to get into Alcoholics Anonymous. This is the most expensive organization I ever joined in my life. It cost me $40,000 to get into this outfit. And I'm going to stay around till I get my money back. I want you to know. The rate is coming in to be a hell of a long time. It's very slow right now. I had to lose the respect of my family. I had to lose the respect of my fellow citizens. And we rationalized those things away because, you see, alcoholism is a very patient disease. Oh, God, it is patient it will wait for you. And when it catches up with you, it will rob you of the greatest gift that God gives to humankind. It will rob you of your self-respect. This is when you become something less than a human being. You develop the morals of an alley cat. You don't give a damn who you hurt, where you're seen, or what you do. And it was in this condition that I was privileged to be brought through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous to stay on January the 31st, 1961. And I have not taken a drink of alcohol in any form since that time. I'm not saying that to impress anyone here this morning, because indeed we have many people in this room who would have long-term sobriety, and they indeed would be the first people to stand up and tell you that we all stay sober on the same basis, one day at a time. There isn't anybody here who got two days today. We all got one day. And whether the fact that I have nearly 28 years of sobriety, whether that impresses you or not, I really don't care. Because, you see, every time I mention it, it impresses the hell out of me, I want you to know. Because right? I couldn't stay sober for 28 minutes, never mind 28 years, and I come to Alcoholics Anonymous and I discovered not only can I get sober and stay sober, I can do something else. And you're probably saying, well, this bird has a reputation for being long-winded. We now know he's loud, and now he's going to lie. He's going to tell us there's more to Alcoholics Anonymous than getting sober and staying sober. My friend, if there wasn't more to Alcoholics Anonymous than getting sober and staying sober, I wouldn't have stayed. I wouldn't have stayed. I'm irrevocably convinced that there are two dimensions to Alcoholics Anonymous. There is the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, which I love with a passion. I've served it long, and I trust that I've served it well. But I'm here this morning to tell you that the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous will not get you sober or keep you sober. It's not intended to do that. If fellowship would do that, I'd join the Rotary Club. <laughs> but I want to be very quick to add that the second dimension of Alcoholics Anonymous is the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And the program of Alcoholics Anonymous will not only get you sober and keep you sober, it will change your life. If you're an alcoholic and you're here this morning and you don't want to change your life, then I beg of you not to come back. Oh, that sounds terribly harsh. But I say that out of interest for you, because if you're here this morning and you're an alcoholic and you have no intentions of changing your life, then the only thing that Alcoholics Anonymous will do for you is uh, screw up your drinking. But if you're an alcoholic and you're here this morning and you want to change your life, then indeed, my friends, you are in the right place. You are in the right place. Unfortunately for many people, I do a lot of speaking in Alcoholics Anonymous from one end of the country to the other. And, you know, when I go to anniversaries, birthdays, events such as this, regular meetings, whatever, I, if I'm speaking, I always try to get there a little early because I like to meet the new people. 
I think that's the lifeblood of Alcoholics Anonymous. I also like to renew acquaintanceships with the older folks that I've known for a long time and enjoy doing that. But being a preacher, which is rather obvious to you, I do it for another reason. Because, you see, as a preacher, I'm one of the... One of the skills I should uh, develop, if I haven't already, is to be a good communicator, to talk, to share with you, and not at you, and not over your head, or anything of that sort, but rather to try and communicate with you. And, and so I get there early, and I size up the audience. As a communicator, that's one of the skills you develop after a while, is to kind of get a sense of the people that you're talking to. And I do it for another reason, because you see this morning, as I always do whenever I'm speaking, I open my remarks by saying to you that I'm a recovered alcoholic. And some people look at you, I had one fellow fall right off the chair when I said that one time, and they look at you and they say, Waters, you just say that to be controversial. My friends, I want you to know I don't have to say anything in Alcoholics Anonymous to be controversial. Just show up. <laughs> or sometimes not show up. And they'll talk about it for bloody weeks. Wilson told me one time, he said, uh, when I was talking about a similar situation, he said, Waters, you shouldn't worry so much about what other people thought about you if you knew how seldom they did. <laughs> and it's very, very true. I take as my authority for the statement that I made that I'm a recovered alcoholic, a quotation from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, this is a very large audience at a large hall, and I'm going to hold this book up. This is the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, my friends. And I have discovered over the years that if you want to hide something from somebody in AA, you put it in the big book. They'll never find it. They think it's a table decoration that goes with the decor of a hall. But one day they walk, by oh, God, there's print in that book. How did that get in there? I want to quote to you from the foreword that was written by Wilson in 1939, and I quote, We of Alcoholics Anonymous are more than 100 men and women who have recovered. That's what it says right there. From a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. To show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book. End of quote. Now, when you use language as direct and as positive as those statements are, my friends, it doesn't leave uh, too much room uh, for friggin' around. And that's what I'm going to talk about. Oh, not friggin' around. No, 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 no. I'll come back another day and do that, you see. I haven't always been a priest. <laughs> I have a distinct advantage over all of you here this morning. I have been on both sides of the confessional. <laughs> and I haven't heard anything I haven't done either, I want you to know. I want to share with you for a little while about the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Not as anyone who has any insights more than anyone else, not as anyone who has any knowledge more than anyone else, but as one who, by the grace of God, and the beautiful people that I've been privileged to know over these years who have uh, afforded me some insights into our fellowship and into our program. And so what I'm going to ask you to do with me for a brief while this morning is that we uh, is to join me in a journey, in a journey through the steps. 
The reason I would ask you to conjure in your mind the idea of a journey is because any journey, no matter what its duration or its destination may be, of necessity always, always begins with the first step. And that's exactly where we'll begin our journey this morning. Oh, we have some very profound people in the program who would tell you that the first step is the most important step of the program. Now, I have no earthly idea whether that's true or not. I have no intentions of arguing about it. But there's one thing I am absolutely certain of about the first step. I couldn't be more sure about about the first step. It's in the right place. <laughs> it's amazing how many people missed that point. They're in the program for 45 minutes and they want to take the fourth and fifth step. And you, you know, you humbly suggest to them that perhaps they should take the first step. And they get enraged. Why, I took the first step before I came to the program of alcoholics now. And people like that shouldn't be treated for alcoholism. They should be treated for lunacy. They're crazy. It is impossible to take the first step of this program without being in the program, for God's sake. Now, it was my privilege to know Wilson. I spent a lot of time with Bill. I say that with a very grateful heart. And during that time, I came to know some things about that man. One of the great blessings that that man was blessed with was he had many gifts that a good God had given him. And he never recognized many of these talents and gifts until very late in life. And one of his great talents was to be able to write. And I'm sure that none of us would argue with the fact that Bill was a, a very great writer and left us a great legacy of writing. But in addition to being a good writer, he had an, an additional ability that very few people have in being able to put into his writings what I would call implications. You and I might call it reading between the lines. If you pick up a daily paper or a book that's written by a good journalist, you won't have to go through any great exercise to understand the whole story, because he will imply in there what he wants to imply. And so this morning I want to share with you some thoughts I have on what I think Bill has implied in many instances in our program, as well as the words themselves. So we will begin with the first step that says, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol and our lives had become unmanageable. Now, in my search for a deeper meaning uh, in my sobriety of these words, I, uh, you know, one day discovered that the word powerless meant the inability to be able to change. My, I was thrilled when I found that out. I was so pleased because, you see, it fitted me very, very well. Because, you see, I did not want to smash up the car. I did not want to lose my business. I did not want to hurt my family. But I could not not do those things. I was powerless. I was cut off from any source of power around about me. I was cut off entirely. I was powerless. I had no ability to be able to change. My friends, for heaven's sake, try to understand that. People say, well, now, how come you came to that conclusion? Very simple, very simple. Those beautiful old-timers, God loved them. They said to me, 
Water, if you're not too bright, what you do is you take the big book, you put it there, you take the dictionary and you put it there, and when you can't understand a word, look it up and find out what it means. And I did, and my God, it was the most amazing education I ever had in my life. I learned all sorts of new words. I learned the meaning of words that I thought I knew before, but had altogether different meaning. And that's where I found the word powerless, the inability to be able to change. Now, what's the implication in the first step? And our lives have become unmanageable. I suggest to you, my friends, that the implication is that we had better get the manageability of our lives back into our own hands as quickly as the good Lord will allow us to get it. If you proceed to the next 11 steps in an unmanageable state, you'll end up with a mess. You'll end up with a mess. If you had a little business and you had a manager running it, and he was running it into the ground and robbing you blind, you wouldn't keep him for sentimental reasons. You'd fire him. And we're not talking about a business, we're talking about our lives. And so you better become the best manager that you can be. Because, you see, I'm irrevocably convinced that if I should die this day, and I pray to God I don't, but if I should appear before my Maker, He's not going to ask me how fast I drove on the highway. He's not going to ask me whether I had bad thoughts. He's not going to ask me whether I swore, whether I cheated on my expense account. He's not going to ask me any of those questions at all. God isn't interested in those kind of things. He's going to ask me one question, I dare say he's going to ask you the same question. He's going to say, Waters, did you become the best you that you could be? And if I'm not able to answer that, I'm in real trouble. And I can only be the best me that I can be if I'm free and I'm the best manager at doing it. And then we go to the second step and it says we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Not God. Not God. Bill very deliberately left God out of the second step for very good reason. If powerless means the inability to be able to change, then power must mean the ability to be able to change. Oh, of course, of course the power comes from God. But you see, the power is not God. He gives you the power. He gives you the power to be able to change your life. And I submit to you, my friends, be very, very careful what you do with that power. Be very careful with it, for heaven's sake. It is very potent. And like the good God that he is, he doesn't tell us what we have to do with it. He gives it to us quite freely. And if he, otherwise, we wouldn't have a free will. And so he gives us this power. I submit to you that many times that power gets misused. I'll give you an example that we can all identify with. That we can all remember. Just a few short years ago, there was an ordained minister by the name of Jimmy Jones. Took a thousand people to Guyana, had a Kool-Aid party and killed the lot. Same power. No different. He was an ordained minister. Asked God for the power he misused it, didn't he? He misused the power. What are you doing with the power that God gives you in your life? Are you using it to destroy Others, are you using it uh, to fulfill the life that God calls you to? That's what it's all about. That's why Bill used that word there and not God. There's an implication in the second step. Oh my, the implication is so strong, so powerful, so important, so essential, that if you miss it, you'll never get off first base. And what is that implication? The implication is, you have to do it. God ain't going to do it for you. I'm going to say something that may sound very strange coming from a clergyman. God does not give you anything. 
Now, just in case you think I said that wrong, I'm going to repeat it. God does not give you anything. If God gave you something and you were obliged to take it, you would no longer have a free will. So what does God do? Well, Bill answers that for us in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous on page 63 when he says this. When we sincerely took such a position, all sorts of remarkable things followed. We had a new employer. Being all-powerful, he provided what we needed. God does not give us what we want. Thank God. You should be very careful what you pray for. I had a fellow report to me a few weeks ago that he prayed for his wife and his girlfriend. They both came back at the same time. <laughs> he was in a terrible mess. So what does God do? He provides. Now, down the street there, there's a grocery store. They provide groceries. But you better not take them for nothing. There are conditions under which you can take those groceries out of the store. And there are conditions under which God provides. He provided what we needed and we kept close to him and performed his work well. That's what the book says. Now, having been around for a while, I get people who come to me and say, Father, how does this thing work? I said, well, here it says on page 63 that he provided what we needed to be kept close to him and performed his work well. Yeah, but Father, you've known me for some time. You can tell me. I said, well, that's very clear. You listen carefully. He provided what we needed to be kept close to him and performed his work well. Yeah, but Father, you've known me for a long time. You can tell me. I said, God damn it, it's right there, you see. Now, there's an awful lot of difference between being stubborn and stupid. Now, that's the best deal you're ever going to get. That's the best deal you're ever going to get. There are no shades of gray there. You either believe it or you don't. If you choose to believe it, I wouldn't be bold enough to tell you what might happen to you. If you choose not to believe it, the best I can do for you is a free funeral at St. Teresa's. And then we go to step three. Made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God, as we understood it. Over to the care of God, not the control of God. Oh, the weeping and wailing that's done on step three is incredible, my friends. You should hear them. You see, they go like this. Look, you brought me to this wonderful outfit, and now you want me to do the impossible. You want me to make a decision. <laughs> Did you ever meet an alcoholic who was foreign to making decisions? I made so many decisions, I put myself out of business three times before I got here. I'm sure some of you would identify, I'm not so sure, maybe here, but in my country... Some of you would identify with that terrible, world-shattering decision you had to make on a very cold Monday morning when it was below zero, when you had to decide whether you were going to be at the vendors at, at five to ten or five after, <laughs> whether you are going to buy one bottle or two. You come here, you see, you can't make a decision. This is the most powerful step in the program, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God, not the control of God. It's amazing how many people want God, think that God should control their life. God doesn't want to control your life, for heaven's sake. If he did, you'd be a robot. God doesn't control your life. Every time I look at this step, I'm reminded of an invitation. There's an invitation. If you were to receive a very, very important invitation, a very, very, you know, prestigious invitation, you'd get very excited about it, wouldn't you? You'd tell all your friends. I was the recipient of such an invitation just a few years ago, about three years ago. I walked into my office one day, and there on my desk sat a very impressive-looking letter with the stamp of the Secretariat of the Vaticano on the corner. That's from head office. <laughs> with trembling hands, I opened that envelope. And to my great joy, I discovered that I was one of the priests in our area 
that was going to be presented, presented to the Holy Father when he came to Canada. Oh my, my heart was pounding. I couldn't believe that this was happening to me. I called my sisters to share that joy with them. And of course they were overjoyed. Not being satisfied with telling them, I called my brother priest to tell them that I was going to meet the Holy Father. Not being satisfied with that, I decided I should call some of my fellow members of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I called them up and I said, guess what, guess what, I'm going to meet the Pope. And they said, what the hell are you talking about? We thought you were the Pope, you see. I'm sure if any of you were to receive a very prestigious invitation from the president, <laughs> anything of that sort, you would tell everybody about it. You would certainly be excited about it. And yet, my friends, every day, every single day of our lives, we receive an invitation to be a co-creator of this world and we receive that invitation from no less than the creator of the universe. My God. My God. I can't believe it. I, I get goosebumps when I think that he would look down and come to me, the least worthy of his servants, and say, come, I want you to help finish my creation. But I say, Lord, Lord, you've forgotten. I'm an alcoholic and all those terrible things I did. And he looks at me and says, Waters, have you not read your program? Does it not say let go and let go? Does it not say some of us have tried to hold on to our old ideas and the result was nil until we let go? Absolutely. He said, not only have I forgiven you, I have taken it away. I have taken it away. How can you be free otherwise? There's no way you can be free if he doesn't do that. I couldn't step foot on his altar tomorrow morning and offer Holy Mass if I didn't believe that with every fiber of my being. Because, you see, I'm a sinner. Oh, I'll give any one of you a good run for your money on that any day of the week. And yet he says, come, I want you to help finish my creation. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? He looks down and says, son, I have some work for you to do. I want you to help to make this this universe of ours, what it ultimately should be. And you're part of that. Why do you think I got this over? Why do you think I brought you to where I brought you? Why do you think, you know, you hear all this? Is it just because I want to entertain you? No. I want you to know that I love you, I have forgiven you, and I have taken it all away. And my book says, most good ideas are simple. And this concept was the keystone of the new and triumphant arch through which we passed to freedom. To freedom. I've been free. I've been free to be, not to do. No, no, that would be nonsense. I'm free to be what God calls me to be. I'm free to be. The doing will follow the being. And then we go to step four. And it says we made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. And everybody gets uptight and says, oh, my God, he's going to talk about his sex life. <laughs> some cases would be rather interesting. <laughs> Most of them would be very short. <laughs> Doesn't say anything there at all about that. We must try to understand what Bill was trying to tell us. 
what is it he's trying to tell us? I mean, it's searching in fearless moral inventory. He's not talking about who you slept with. Moral means the total person. Physical, mental, spiritual person. That's what the word moral means, the total person. There's a lot of people in our program who will take uh, a physical inventory, who will take a, a moral, uh, a, a psychological inventory, but never take a spiritual inventory, or vice versa, and they leave one-third of the program out. Physical, mental, spiritual, that's what that means. Not who you slept with. The key word, the, the implication. In step four, listen carefully, my friends, is the word inventory. Why? Well, you know and I know. We're familiar with that word, aren't we? We see stores that are closed in January because they're taking inventory. Now, if I was asked to take an inventory of this room, I would lock the door, and then I would take stock of what is in the room, not what used to be in it, or what's going to be in it. What's in it now? This is a now program. What have I become as a result of? I beg of you, I implore you, please do not wallow around in the past. It may be necessary to look to the past, but in the name of God, please do not stay there. That kind of stuff made you drunk before, and it'll make you drunk again. Hasn't changed. That becomes step four. And you go to five, and it says, Admitted to God to ourselves and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs, not our inventory. Not our inventory. Eh? Let me just dwell for a moment on step four. It's amazing what people do on step four. I get a fellow called me up. Father, I want to take step four and five. He said, well, come on over and we'll talk about it. Half an hour later, he arrives with a half-ton truck and three trunk loads of writings that he wants to tell me about. And he's got, uh, you know, I should teach them and make them into soap operas. They're wonderful things. But he has some more pressing problems, and he reaches into his pocket, and he brings out a sheet of papers, but this long. He's got the name, the address, and the amount he stole off every bank in the country. I said, for God's sakes, get rid of it. The police are looking for it, you know. Then he reaches into his other pocket, and he brings out a sheet of paper. It's so long, it runs across the floor. He's got the name, address, and telephone number of every woman he's had an affair with. I said, don't give it to me, I might get tempted, <laughs> you know. It's amazing what we do with that, isn't it? And then we go to step five, and it says, get rid of that junk. Get rid of that junk. You cannot be free if you carry that kind of crap around. That's, a, that's terrible. Don't ever do that. Now, before I leave four and five, there's a pair of steps there, aren't there? I went to, I used to go to a meeting in Oakville in the early days of my sobriety, and we had a little fellow who used to come there. He's dead now, God rest him. We had a nickname for him, we called him No God Joe. Joe didn't believe in God. At least he said he didn't. And, uh, he never quite made the program. So one night I'm at the meeting, and it was the night we're going to talk about step four and five. And I thought, this is indeed my lucky night. Joe was here. And I'm going to find out how one would take four and five without any relationship with the higher power. So it came Joe's turn, and I'm all ears. And Joe said, I'll have no trouble with that at all. He said, I'm going to take the person I hate the most, tell him everything I know, and then shoot him. <laughs> Not a bad idea. <laughs> Don't let Al-Anon get to know that. They'll do something. And then we go to step six. 
Six and seven should not be their pair of steps, too. They should not be separated, but I'm going to separate them briefly. Because step six says we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character, and seven says somebody asked him to remove our shortcomings. I was so intrigued by the way that Joe handled four and five, I thought I'll go back next week and see how they do, how he does six and seven. Sure enough, Joe's there, and I'm all ears. Joe says, I understand that step completely. He said, a defect of character is when you look at a good-looking girl, and a shortcoming is when you catch her. <laughs> Not bad. I'm going to separate them briefly. Six were entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. I see between 40 and 45 people in my office every month, alcoholics. Some are practicing, some are not. Some are in the program, some are not. And I get a little fellow, he comes in, and I know he's going through the steps, and he's on step six. And uh, he comes in, and I said, now you're on step six. says we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. And he says, I'm mad. Oh, who are you mad at? Mad at God. Oh, that's serious. What did God do to you? God didn't take away my defects of character. Oh, I see. Well, you should read that step again. It says we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. didn't say he would. I am completely, totally convinced, my dear friends, that very often God does not remove our defects of character for a very special reason. Very, very special reason. Let me offer you a couple of examples. Can you think of any finer way, can you think of any better way to acquire the virtue of patience than through impatience? Can you think of any better way to acquire the virtue of tolerance than through intolerance? There's no other way that I know of. I use those two because they are the bane of my life to this very day. I lecture at the University of Waterloo which is not far from where I live. And one day, I'm on my way to a lecture, and I had to go through the downtown area of Kitchener, a very congested area, and I was running a bit late. And there was a young fella got in front of me in his car, and he knew I was in a hurry. <laughs> and I could not get by him. And I had to keep reminding myself, now, Waters, for God's sakes, don't disgrace the church I had the collar on. No matter how I tried, I couldn't get by him. And finally, we came to an intersection where he had to pull over. And I pulled up alongside him. I rolled down my window and I motioned to him to do the same. And he did. And he's looking out his window with a smirk on his face at me. And I said to him, will you do me a favor? He said, sure. I said, send your mother and father over and I'll marry them. Now, that's what I call patience. <laughs> right after my ordination to the priesthood, I was assigned to a parish in Hamilton, on the mountain in Hamilton, and Sunday in the life of a priest was a very busy day, and my sister over in Oakville, about 20 miles away, had arranged a family gathering, and when you're a priest, your sisters become your boss, you see. And I knew I'd better be there or I'd be in for a dressing down. And so I left the parish as quickly as I could and got in my little car and I drove down through the city past the cathedral and on to a very busy expressway going hell-bent for election towards Oakville to my sister's place. And I no sooner pulled onto the expressway than I realized that I had cut a fellow off. Now, I didn't intend to do that, but there was absolutely no doubt about the fact that I was guilty. And I looked in the rearview mirror 
And the look of horror on this poor man's face was something to behold. He had his hands on the steering wheel and his knuckles were white and he was coming directly at me. And as he came up as close beside me as he could, he went like that, you see. And as soon as he saw the caller's hand went right down like that, you see. And I gave him a blessing and sent him on his way, I want you to know. And that's what I call tolerance. Seven, humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings. This is a step that gets uh, short shifts. We don't understand it sometimes. We don't understand it. And I submit to you, my friends, we should not play games with God on step seven. Humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings. You know, I see people in the program, I've been guilty of it myself, when I've said to God, oh yes, God, you can take this away, but don't take that. I'd like to hang on to this other one for a little while. You know, sort of like St. Augustine. You ever read the life of St. Augustine? St. Augustine, before his conversion to Christianity, was quite a character. He had a concubine, he had a few things going on the side, he probably would have qualified for membership in our fellowship at that time, but uh, his mother, St. Monica, she prayed for 20 years for his conversion, he finally became converted, and after he became converted, he prayed to the Lord, he said, oh Lord, Lord, make me chase, but not right away. <laughs> That's what we do with step seven very often. We ask God, but we don't really mean it, and God starts to take these things away and we get all uptight. Now, if you mean it, that's fine. If you're serious about it, that's good. But if you're not, then wait until you are. And then go back and take that step and take it properly. But don't, don't play games with God. God is not designed to play games with. He, he, it's a very serious business with him. So don't play games. Now, eight. Made a list of all persons we'd hire and became willing to make amends to them all. I get this guy comes into my office. He's on step eight. And I said to him, Charlie, how are you doing? You're on step eight. says, made a list of all persons we'd hired, became willing to make amends to them all. Oh, I'm doing fine, he says. I'm making amends. I bought the groceries last week. That is not an amend. That's an obligation. And there's a powerful amount of difference. And then we get one of these geniuses who says, oh, yes, I'm making amends. I bought the kid's shoes. You're supposed to buy the kid's shoes, for God's sake. Bill has told us in his writings what an amend is. An amend is to repair the damage. Not to buy the groceries or the kids' shoes. Some of you fellows who stood before a guy like me with a collar on like this and a pretty little girl beside you and said, I take her for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health until death do us part. In case you don't know it, that's a very binding legal document. They call it a marriage license. And it costs some of you an awful lot of money to get out of it. <laughs> There's an awful lot of difference between an amend and an obligation. And we should know that distinction very clearly. And Bill tells us an amend is to repair the damage. God can mend a broken heart, but only if we give him all the pieces. If we hold back, we will not give peace. Eight, made a list of all... <clears throat> Nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. In the many years that I've been traveling around AA, going to conventions, various functions, <clears throat> I must say to you that I thoroughly enjoy, you know, hearing people laugh. We've had a lot of laughter this weekend, and it has been good. Because laughter is the medicine of the soul, and it's good for us. But there is also a time to be serious. 
And I want to be very, very serious on step nine, which says we made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Dr. Bob, God rest his soul, gave us a great legacy of writing. And in his writings, he warned us that there was a part of our anatomy that could get us into a great deal of difficulty if we didn't handle it carefully. He said it's about that long. It's called the tongue. The tongue. I want to say to you, my friend, that the gossip in Alcoholics Anonymous is scandalous. Nothing short of scandalous. We go around and we pat ourselves on the back and tell everyone in sundry how great we are. And I wonder, I wonder how many people were sitting in a little room this weekend somewhere in the state who would have loved to have been here. But you see, the last time they were here, somebody said something that didn't need to be said. And they couldn't come back because they hurt. I wonder how many people we've sent to an alcoholic grave because we've yacked. And it wasn't necessary. I'm very privileged as a pastor to know a lot about my parishioners. And I stand in the pulpit on Sunday morning, and she's always in the second row from the back at the first mass. She wears a lot of makeup. I know why. She's got a practicing alcoholic husband who beats the hell out of her on Saturday night. I come up the aisle, and there's that couple. I see them every Sunday without fail. Their hair is getting grayer. They have a daughter they haven't seen for three years who's in the drug scene somewhere. Then I come up near the front. There she sits. There's a little gal over there. She's got three little ones with her. She's a single mother. Just doing a great job. Would any one of you here, would any one of you here this morning add one single cubit to the load that those people are already carrying? Of course you wouldn't. Don't do it in Alcoholics Anonymous. You should never, never criticize another Indian until you've walked a mile in his moccasins. Please remember that. Please remember that. Ken continued to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. I don't know about you, but I know what I'm going to do tonight. When I go and get home back to Ontario... And I get ready for bed. I'm going to kneel beside my bed. And I'm going to tell Almighty God that I'm sorry for the sins of my life. You see, my humanity is frail and weak. And before I roll into bed, I'm going to tell him also that I'm more sorry than ever for the sins of omission. The things I might have done today that I didn't do. I would ask you to take a thought with you And remember, remember they recall this thought, if you will, tonight, just before you put the light out. You realize that you will never, ever, ever, ever live this day again. The opportunities that were given to you today will never be again. Oh, you may have thousands of them in the years to come, and I pray you do. But the ones that he gave you today, what did you do with them? What did you do with them? 
Can you really say to him, yes, I responded to those occasions with a smile, with a handshake, with a word of affirmation, with a little help here or there? Did you do that? If you did, then you have fulfilled it very well. If you haven't, then look for the omissions and promise yourself they won't occur again. Step 11. Start through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood in praying only for the knowledge of His will for us and the power to carry that out. Most beautiful step. Most beautiful step. Oh my, it's wonderful. We say in our program, prayer is our talking to God and meditation is our listening to God. In my searching and reading, I've never been able to improve on that particular definition of prayer and meditation. But like a lot of other things, there's a catch in it. And if you're not careful, you fall into the trap. And let me tell you what the trap is. You pray. And oh, you pray. And we storm the gates of heaven with our prayers. And God hasn't got a chance to get a word in edgewise. Would never surprise me, my friends, if one day God didn't look over the wall of heaven and look down on us and say, Shut up! I want to tell you something. Have you ever listened to him? I hear God in my life every day. I hear him. He speaks to me in various ways. Let me give you some examples. I have two schools beside my rectory with about 400 students. I go out in the playground and those little ones hug you, squeeze you, kiss you. <laughs> Kids are wonderful, you know. They give it to you direct, you know. They either like you or they don't. Eh? No phoniness about that at all. People say to me, oh, Father, it must be difficult for you to spend that time with the children. Greatest part of my day. I come in walking on air. God has spoken to me through the little one. <laughs> They're wonderful. Now, let me tell you another way that God speaks to me. Wednesday afternoon, the phone rings. And this young lady identifies herself. I know the family. She says, Father, we would like to see you on Saturday. Hmm. I pick up on the weed. And I said, you be at my office at 10 o'clock. Saturday morning, the doorbell rings at 10 o'clock. And I go, and there's this young lady whom I've seen at Mass many times with her parents. And with her, a young man I've never seen before. Now, I know these kids have had to screw up a lot of courage to come see the priest. Because, you see, priests are very strange people, you know. They live in that house over there, you know. They never get married, you know. They always wear black, you know. So I know they've had to screw up a lot of courage. And I bring them in, I set them in my office. I keep a stern face. And after a moment or two, the young fellow braces his shoulders back and he looks at me and he says, Father... We want to get married. And I want to go over and throw my arms around him, eh? <laughs> God has spoken to me loud and clear. This young couple want to get married. They can go down to City Hall and get married there. They could shack up. They could do all sorts of things our society provides for them. But no, they love one another and they want to do it in a traditional manner. And they're going to allow an old coot like me to be a part of the most important day of their life. God has spoken to me loud and clear. Now, if you don't think that that's God talking to me, let me tell you about Sarah. Sarah's my girlfriend. <laughs> Sarah's 87. She's almost blind. She lives in a little room all by herself. The VON nurses come in and look after her. She's Irish and she's fiercely independent. 
She has my ordination picture on her mantle. She prayed me all the way through seminary. And we have a tradition in the church whereby we bring Holy Communion on the first Friday of the month. It's very important for Sarah to know exactly what time I will be there because she has to leave the door unlocked. And I tell her I'll be there at 10 o'clock. Along about Wednesday before the first Friday, Sarah starts to get ready for the Lord. <laughs> I wish I could take you with me. Walk into the room and you can just reach out and touch the presence of God in that room. Oh yeah, I wish I could take you with me because there, there's God right there. So she brought him right there. And so I bring her Holy Communion and we pray a little bit. And then we put everything away and we talk a little bit. She tells me all about her aches and pains and I tell her all about mine. And then I'm just about ready to leave. And she reaches under her pillow and she pulls out a white envelope. Now I've been a priest long enough to know what that means. And I say to her, Sarah, I'll be offended if you offer me anything for coming here. This is one of the great privileges of my priesthood is to bring you Holy Communion. She looks me right in the eye and she says, Father, you're taking it, she says. There's two dollars in there. And I want you to light a candle for peace in the world. That's when I know why I'm sober. <laughs> and that's when I know why I'm a priest. And you know something? I nearly missed it all. Booze just about took it all away. Just about lost the whole thing. Can you imagine? Can you imagine losing that? Booze just, just, just about took all that away. God is good, isn't he? Eh? God is good. Our 12th step says, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we try to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Not the steps. What are the principles? Honesty, open-mindedness, willingness, tolerance, understanding, compassion, love. Oh, God is good. We're indeed very, very fortunate. We are the most fortunate of people. We really are. I want to close very quickly, but there are two or three short things I want to do before I close. I first of all want to pay tribute to the most beautiful people that I know. And I'm not talking about the members of Alcoholics Anonymous. I am talking about the members of Alcoholics I love you very much. You have been a great gift to me in my sobriety. And I'm thankful to God that he has placed many of you in my life. And it is my fervent prayer and my wish that you be permitted to walk side by side, not behind, side by side with the great fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous as long as God wishes. Second thing I want to do in closing, I know we have visitors with us, so I'm going to ask you to close your ears because I want to make my remarks direct to my fellow members of Alcoholics Anonymous. There's a phenomena that takes place in Alcoholics Anonymous that I'm ashamed of. It appears to me there are people who come to Alcoholics Anonymous and they sober up and then indeed they tighten up. And if your perceptions are telling you that I'm going to talk about money, they're very accurate. <laughs> This will be known as the Catholic part of the meeting from here on in. I want you to know. There are people who come to Alcoholics Anonymous, they occupy a chair, they drink six cups of coffee, four, eat four sandwiches, and put 25 cents on the plate. 
At that point, we've lost money on you. I challenge you. I challenge my fellow members of Alcoholics Anonymous in this room this morning that the next time you are at your meeting, I challenge you to a silent collection. I further challenge you that when the plate comes by, you ask yourself a question. How much is my sobriety worth? And you respond accordingly. Ouch. Some people say, oh, you give until it hurts. You do no such thing. You give until it feels good. That's just a little bit further. <laughs> oh, God forbid that I would embarrass anyone who doesn't have any money. I know what that feels like most of the time. And I say to the man or the gal who's with us who doesn't have any money, the plate comes by and you need some, take some. But if you've got it, we want it. I gave this talk one time to a very, very large audience. There were 2,000 people. There were four ministers, and they all come up and ask me to join their church right away. In 1978, I made a very, very important decision in my life. I decided that I would uh, enter the priesthood. I'd been in the business world and political world for many years, and uh, through the good graces of the bishop of my diocese, he made it possible for me to study for the priesthood at a place called Pope John 23rd Seminary in Boston, Massachusetts. I arrived at Pope John 23rd Seminary on my 50th birthday. They said, you have to study philosophy and theology, and I couldn't even spell it, never mind study it. I went there, and I rang the doorbell, and the guardian came, and I told him who I was. Oh, yes, Mr. Waters, he said, we've been waiting for you. He said, we have a room for you in the south wing of the seminary, room 163. I want you to remember that. I went down to room 163, and my friends, I would have to tell you that it was so small, you'd have to go outside to change your mind. I put everything away that I owned, and I sat on the bed, side of the bed, and I looked at the bare floor, the desk, the lamp, and the chair, and the bare wall, and I said to myself, Waters, what in the name of God have you done? 500 miles away from anyone I knew, my superiors in the seminary knew that I was a member of AA, and they encouraged it. So with, one of the help, with the help of one of the men in the seminary, I found out where the first meeting was that night, a place called Holy Spirit Church, Rice Road, Wayland, Massachusetts. And filled with a great amount of fear, I drove over there. And as I walked across the parking lot and into the church, the fear was taken away. Because I knew that whatever God would ask of me, I'd be able to do it, because you'd be there. And it turned out to be true, because four years later I was ordained to the priesthood. About six weeks into this first seminary year, we had an, an assembly of all the men in the house. We had 60 men. They came from all over the world. They were ages 35 to 65, <clears throat> all second career people. And we had this assembly in order that we might all get to know one another. And every one of those men that night, with the exception of one, gave me a great deal of love and affirmation. The one exception was a young man, 38 years of age. His name was David. He made no bones about it that he didn't like me. He offended me in no uncertain terms and said he didn't want to speak to me. And I felt terrible. I'd never met him before. And I couldn't understand why... He lived two doors down the hall from me. 
And I thought it's going to be very difficult to live with a bird like that around for four years. Well, it didn't take me long to know why David didn't like me. Because they tell us in our program, you can't tell them unless you can smell them. David would come in very late at night, in the back door, stay on duly long in his room, fresh dints in his car, and if he would pass me in the corridor without speaking, I could smell him. And I knew what David's problem was. And I wanted so much to go to David and say, David, I know what your problem is, and what you can do about it, but I knew he'd punch me one right in the nose. So I did what you told me to do, I prayed. I prayed every morning and every night for David, that he would find an answer. We had morning prayer and night prayer in the seminary, and I prayed every morning and every night. And time went by, months rolled by, and David was getting worse. After ten months, I was in my room one night getting ready for to go to Mass, when there was a rap at the door, and I went to the door, and there stood David. He said, can I come in? I said, yes. He said, I have just come from the rector's office, and he has told me to go to my room and pack my bag, and get out of here, or go to room 163. <laughs> David and I began a journey in priesthood that is still going on. David is a priest in Rhode Island today doing a marvelous job. We also began a journey in AA that is still going on. In 1985, I had the privilege of being one of the speakers at the 50th International in Montreal, and David shared the platform with me. <laughs> Don't tell me it doesn't work. Don't tell me that it doesn't work. God transcends the appearance and the personality of the individual and goes directly to the soul. Bill called it the language of the heart. Oh, indeed, we're fortunate. Bill said in the last part of his writing, Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit. Not the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. We already belong to that. Have you joined the fellowship of the Spirit? I have a long time ago. And it is wonderful. Now, if you're not in it, we have openings. And I suggest to you, you get in it. Because you're shortchanging yourself if you are not in the fellowship of the Spirit. I'm not talking about the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. I already know you're in that. You're here. But did you get in the fellowship of the Spirit? That's what Bill said. That's what he said. The fellowship of the Spirit. My God. It, it just blows your mind. It just blows your mind. It is so beautiful. It is so tremendous. Fellowship of the Spirit. And you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road to happy destiny. Isn't it true? Since I have joined the Fellowship of the Spirit, I have met many. I keep meeting them. And it's just absolutely, it is absolutely beautiful. It's absolutely just incredible how God works. Transcends the appearance, the personality of the individual and goes directly to yourself. As we gather in this great hall this morning, on this, the Sabbath day. What a great day to join the fellowship of the Spirit. Because it's here this morning. You saw a whole parade of people this past four days who all belong to the fellowship of the Spirit. Don't shortchange yourself. 
I want to close with a little piece of poetry that I've used on many occasions that bears repeating. Some of you will have heard it. It's entitled The Old Violin. It was battered and scarred, and the auctioneer scarcely thought it worth his while. To waste his time on the old violin, but he held it up with a smile. What have I bidden, good people, he cried, who'll start the bidding for me? A dollar, a dollar, now two, two dollars, and who'll make it three? Three dollars once, three dollars twice, and going for three, but no. From the room far back, a gray-haired man came forward and picked up the bow. And wiping the dust from the old violin and tightening up the strings, he played a melody pure and sweet, as sweet as the angel sings. The music ceased, and the auctioneer, with a voice that was quiet and low, said, what am I bid for the old violin? And he held it up with the bow. A thousand dollars, and who'll make it two? Two thousand, and who'll make it three? Three thousand once, three thousand twice. And going and gone, said he. The people cheered, but some of them cried. We don't quite understand what changed his worth. Swift came the reply, the touch of the master's hand. And many a man with life out of tune and battered and torn with sin is auction cheap to a thoughtless crowd, much like the old violin. A mess of pottage, a glass of wine, a game and he travels on. He's going once, he's going twice, he's going and he's almost gone. But the master comes, and the foolish crowd never can quite understand the worth of a soul and the change that's wrought by the touch of the master's hand. God bless.